If confirmed, I will supervise the prosecution of white supremacists and others, others? that sought to disrupt a cornerstone of our democracy, the peaceful transfer of power to a newly elected government. Okay. That sounds good. Count me in. Go get him, Judge Garland. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the Bradcast. Coming up, we will be joined by longtime national security and accountability blogger. Is that a good way to describe her, Desi Doyne? Yes, I think so. Uh, Marcy Wheeler will be joining us for the first time since she skedaddled the U.S. and is now living <laughs> in Ireland to discuss a number of things, including the nomination and ongoing confirmation process of Joe Biden's attorney general nominee, Merrick Garland. Uh, is he is he tough enough for the huge task that he'll now have at hand after four years of uh, Donald Trump? And is he tough enough to, yes, take on Donald Trump himself, if need be? We will see what Marcy has to say about that uh, and about whether Trump is actually in as much trouble as I actually think that he may be, especially following yesterday's apparently unanimous decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, including the three Trump appointees packed onto that court by Trump himself. Their decision that Trump's financial documents must now, at long last, be turned over to Cyrus Vance Jr., the Manhattan district attorney who is looking at criminal fraud charges for our disgraced former president. But quickly, before we get to Marcy, uh, speaking of the Supreme Court, some business that I wasn't able to get to yesterday from the court. The uh, Supreme Court on Monday turned away Republican challenges to the presidential election results in Pennsylvania. 
Wow. on Monday. Those yeah. are still going on. Still going on. Uh, refusing to take up. It was actually this case was brought before the election. This mm. is a four months long dispute over extending the deadline in that state for receiving mail-in ballots. It was part of a purge of sorts, as uh, Washington Post describes it. The high court formally dismissed a whole range of suits filed by Trump and his allies in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona, all states that were won by the Democrat Joe Biden. The court's intent in most of those had been signaled when it refused to expedite consideration of those cases before Joe Biden was inaugurated as president. But the case in Pennsylvania specifically was really the only case of the more than 60 or so filed by Trump and his MAGA associates before and after the election that wasn't simply laughed out of court. This case was about deadlines for receiving mail-in ballots. It was a bit different from the cases uh, in the other states. Here, three Republican justices, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch, said that this case did deserve the court's attention, even though uh, the number of votes at issue in the case... These are votes that arrived uh, in uh, the three days following the election in Pennsylvania, less than 10,000 of them. It would not call into question Biden's victory, but they thought the case was worth looking at. Alito wrote in his dissent, quote, a decision in these cases would not have any implications regarding the 2020 election, but a decision would provide invaluable guidance for future elections. And guess what? I agree with Sam Alito. What? what? Exactly. Yes, actually, I do. Uh, as the Post reports, it takes the uh, votes of four justices to accept a case for review. Although changing election rules, they write, because of the pandemic has been a theme of Republican challenges in the wake of Trump's defeat, the rest of the right-wing majority on the 6-3 to three court was silent on this matter. Neither Chief Justice John Roberts nor the, uh, the three justices nominated by Trump on, uh, signed on to the uh, dissents from Thomas and Alito. Besides Gorsuch, Trump chose Justice Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. Now, the issue is whether the state courts or other state officials have the right to change voting procedures that are set by the legislature when federal elections are at stake. In extending the right to a mail-in ballot to all voters in late 2019, before the pandemic struck, Pennsylvania's Republican-controlled legislature, they, they're the ones who, ex who, who set these rules, they said that the ballots must be received by 8 p.m. on Election Day in order to be counted. But there were challenges after the pandemic struck uh, with Democrats citing the pandemic and concerns about the Postal Service and their ability to deliver mail on time after the Postal Service had notified states that they could not deliver them on time. Uh, that following the installation of Trump's Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy, who, by the way, is still in place. Yes, he, he is. He can't be removed by the president. He needs to be removed by the Postal Governing Board. So Biden needs to ask them all to resign, then appoint a new board, and then they can fire Louis DeJoy, uh, who recently 
announced that the U.S. Postal Service's new plan, and I kid you not, is to deliver the mail more slowly and at a higher price. (laughs) That's actually his plan. But anyway, that's a matter for another day. What happened here was that after concerns about mail-in ballots uh, arriving in time to be counted, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court extended the deadline for receiving those ballots until three days after the election. They were citing a provision in the state constitution that promises a fair election, and they thought this was the only way to ensure that. They were trying to fulfill that obligation with the extension. In a pre-election challenge to that ruling, however, by Trump and the state Republicans, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at it and they were deadlocked four to four. Trump's most recently jammed onto the court Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, She did not participate. That meant that the extension decided by the state Supreme Court would, in fact, be applied during the election. In the end, As I said, it affected fewer than 10,000 votes. Biden won the state by 80,000 votes. But the question of who can decide voting procedures has now uh, become a very important one suddenly for Republicans uh, who just happen to control more of the state's legislatures around the country than Democrats do. And they have claimed that any and all changes to voting procedures that they didn't like that were made by a secretary of state or a governor or, yes, even a state Supreme Court, that that was in violation of the U.S. Constitution, which they claim mandates that only state legislatures may set any rules or laws regarding elections. Frankly, it's a ridiculous argument because they argue, for example, that even a governor, if if a governor vetoes an election-related law made by the legislature, it doesn't matter because election laws are left only to the legislature according to this reading of the Constitution's elections clause. So, Uh, You know, never mind, even if the state gave power to a secretary of state to set the manner for certain election provisions, like how many absentee drop boxes to deploy, that would be illegal, unconstitutional, if the legislature did not do it themselves, according to this, uh, or if a state Supreme Court decided a, a law adopted by the legislature violates the state constitution. Too bad. That the U.S. Constitution says that it's none of the state Supreme Court's business, according to this reading of the Constitution. Which is ridiculous. Well, the Republicans don't think so. And uh, while four of the uh, uh, right wing justices had endorsed that view prior to the election, that was not enough to uh, to get a ruling on this. And now, previously, back in uh, in 2000, in uh, Bush v. Gore, there were three justices who agreed with that. Uh, so now there are only three, again, even though there was four before the election, now there are only three who wanted to hear this case. Clarence Thomas being one of them, he said, we failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we again fail to provide clear rules for future elections. The decision to leave election law hidden beneath a shroud of doubt is baffling, he said. By doing nothing, we invite further confusion and erosion of voter confidence. Our fellow citizens deserve better. 
Uh, Alito joined uh, with Gorsuch. They were sort of joining with each other on various aspects of this, said a decision in these cases would not have any implications regarding the 2020 election, but a decision would provide invaluable guidance for future elections. And as noted, yeah, I kind of agree with them because this issue will now be sitting at the heart of GOP complaints and conspiracies about elections upcoming so I don't know. Right now, this is just going to be left hanging out there like a, I don't know, I will let you imagine your own hanging out there metaphor at this point. <laughs> but Thomas wrote, these cases provide an ideal opportunity to address what what authority that non-legislative officials have to set election rules and to do so well before the next election cycle. Kind of agree with him. Richard Pildes, an election law expert at NYU, said the decision was likely motivated by the court's desire to provide closure to the 2020 election so as to uh, stop casting any doubt on it. Um, But this is just going to be hanging out there. And every complaint, uh, Steve Scalise, for example, House Minority Whip, was on ABC, uh, ABC's This Week on Sunday. He said there were a few states that did not follow their state laws. That's really the dispute that you've seen continue on. So when he's talking about the states that did not follow their state's laws, he's talking about Pennsylvania, where the state Supreme Court made this order according to the state constitution. Which is its mandate. It is supposed to interpret the state's laws. Now, you can just look at what, you know, Republicans are now doing uh, all over the country because passage of H.R. 1, that's the For the People Act by Congress, would settle many, if not most, of these issues. But to do that, we're going to have to do away with the filibuster. And to do that, you got to convince Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema in Arizona that this is, in fact, an undemocratic process in the Senate, a Jim Crow-era Senate procedure that should be done away with, because right now, There are some 165 pending bills in 33 different states to restrict voting put forward by Republicans. So maybe Sinema and Manchin will come to see how important this is. But, you know, what Republicans are doing just by way of uh, of Georgia, we talked about it a little bit last week with Ari Berman on this show. But it's it's gotten worse since actually since we talked to Ari. That was fast. Yeah. House Bill 531 was suddenly announced this would restrict in Georgia absentee voting, limit the use of mobile voting units, ban counties from holding early voting on Sundays, which Mm. is souls to the polls day, popular with black voters who head to the polls and vote en masse. Right after church. Right after church on Sundays. Right. And uh, they announced the Republicans announced this bill like out of nowhere with just hours before they were going to debate it in committee last week. Democrats are furious about it. whole bunch of voting rights groups are, are challenging it. But today in the Georgia State Senate, the first of these uh, many election bills uh, did clear the Senate chamber. In this case, voters would have to provide a driver's license number, a state ID number, or a copy of a photo ID when requesting an absentee ballot, according to Senate Bill 67. It passed largely along party lines. It will now go to the uh, State House of Representatives, where it's probably going to be more popular. The effort to require ID for absentee voting 
has strong support from Republicans in both of the chambers, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Democrats oppose it, saying it would create a burden for Georgia voters who lack a driver's license or access to a copy machine, which would now be needed to submit a photo ID. The sponsor of the bill, however, State Senator Larry Walker, said all but 3% of Georgia voters already have a driver's license number or a state ID number, meaning they wouldn't have to provide a copy of photo ID to, to vote absentee. Just 3%, Des. Of course, you might recall that Joe Biden won the state by about 12,000 votes. That's just over two-tenths of 1%. And in the two Senate runoffs last month, Democrat John Ossoff won by 1.2 percent. Raphael Warnock won his Senate runoff by 2 percent. So, yeah, 3 percent of the vote matters. And photo ID is already required of in-person voters. At the time that Georgia passed that law, more Republicans used mail-in voting than Democrats, so they didn't bother to require any ID for absentee voting back then. But now the Democrats used it a lot. And it worked to help Democrats get elected. Now they want to uh, change that as well and make that harder. Of course. The, uh, the Republican sponsor, Walker, said it's not about disenfranchising voters. It's about efficiency <laughs> and security. Democratic State Senator David Lucas said the ID requirement would make it harder for people to vote absentee, especially those who'd have to make a copy of photo ID to request an absentee ballot. And, of course, if the House bill passes as well, which may also happen today, they'll, uh, they'll ha actually have to make another copy of their photo ID, if they have one, when actually voting with their absentee ballot. So both to request and to vote. Lucas said, let's make no mistake about what this bill is about. The election did not turn out the way you wanted it to. He said in a tearful speech, we are perpetuating this big lie of fraud. Hard to argue with that. But that's what they're doing. So uh, are you paying attention? Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema in the Senate, where you could stop this crap all over the country? Anyway, uh, speaking of perpetuating the big lie of fraud in last year's election, there's guy being confirmed right now in the U.S. Senate who may have an opinion about that and actually be able to do something about it. Marcy Wheeler joins us next on the confirmation of Joe Biden's attorney general, Merrick Garland, and on accountability, jail time even, maybe, for Donald Trump himself. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Our sometimes curmudgeonly friend, I think that's fair to say, and pseudonymously named BMAZ over over at the great Empty Wheel blog on Monday... Uh, who I think it's fair to say is not prone to niceties about these things. Uh, He was monitoring Joe Biden's attorney general nominee, Judge Merrick Garland's confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee and described it as, quote, really good viewing as these things go, noting bottom line, Merrick Garland is absolutely slaying this hearing. Here's just a few moments from Garland's opening statement in the Judiciary Committee on Monday. Celebrating DOJ's 150th year reminds us of the origins of the department, which was founded during Reconstruction in the aftermath of the Civil War to secure the civil rights that were promised in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The first attorney general appointed by President Grant to head the new department led it in a concerted battle to protect black voting rights from the violence of white extremists successfully prosecuting hundreds of cases against uh, white supremacist members of the Ku Klux Klan. Almost a century later, the Civil Rights Act of 1957 created the Department's Civil Rights Division with a mission to uphold the civil and constitutional rights of all Americans, particularly some of the most vulnerable members of our society. That mission on the website of the department's Civil Rights Division remains urgent because we do not yet have equal justice. Communities of color and other minorities still face discrimination in housing, in education, in employment, and in the criminal justice system. And they bear the brunt of the harm caused by pandemic, pollution, and climate change. If confirmed, I will supervise the prosecution of white supremacists and others who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, a heinous attack that sought to disrupt a cornerstone of our democracy, the peaceful transfer of power to a newly elected government. Of course, we are now a full month into the Biden presidency, and the fact that Garland is only now coming up for his confirmation hearings he had a second day on Tuesday, is part and parcel of GOP efforts to stall his confirmation as long as possible because that's the GOP now uh, and their politics. Of course, Garland is used to waiting as the chief judge of the D.C. Court of Appeals, whose nomination by Barack Obama to the U.S. Supreme Court to fill the seat of the late Antonin Scalia. Uh, Garland's confirmation to the Supreme Court was blocked entirely for a full year so that Republicans could steal the seat on the high court after Donald Trump was eventually elected in 2016. But now, while they can delay, there seems little in the way of Garland finally, as soon, taking his post as the nation's top cop where on Monday he said that accountability for the January 6th Trump-incited attack on the U.S. Capitol would be one of his very first priorities as attorney general. At the same time on Monday, we began to get a clearer sense of what awaits our former disgraced president as his own stolen and packed U.S. Supreme Court without dissent 
cleared the way for the Manhattan District Attorney to obtain tax and other financial documents from Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA, after Trump successfully used his presidential powers to block Cyrus Vance's subpoenas for those documents for years while Trump was still in office as part of the prosecutor's criminal investigation into the 45th president's alleged tax fraud, bank fraud, and insurance fraud, as well as the hush money payments made to porn star Stormy Daniels in a conspiracy for which Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, was sentenced to prison after both he and federal prosecutors revealed that the criminal conspiracy was, quote, directed by Donald Trump. The Supreme Court has now cleared the way for Vance to finally obtain Trump's financial documents, perhaps as early as this week, which sent the disgraced former president into a bit of a rage from Mar-a-Lago, according to a lengthy, rambling statement that he released in response to the court's decision, describing it as, quote, a continuation of the greatest political witch hunt in the history of our country. The Tea Party, he said, was treated far better by the IRS than Donald Trump, he railed, though I'm not entirely sure what that means. I think it's a reference to the phony Obama-era faux scandal when the Tea Party pretended that they were being mistreated by the IRS. The Supreme Court should never have let this fishing expedition happen, but they did, Trump continued turning to his tried and true grievance of being a victim whose election was stolen from him in hopes, perhaps, of another uprising on his behalf. Quote, these are attacks by Democrats willing to do anything to stop the almost 75 million people, the most votes by far ever gotten by a sitting president who voted for me in the election, an election which many people and experts feel that I won. I agree, he said. The election was not stolen from him. He lost it. That's fascism, not justice, crybaby Trump continued. And that is exactly what they are trying to do with respect to me, except that the people of our country won't stand for it. I will fight on despite all the election crimes that were committed against me, he whined, concluding we will win. Though between the criminal probe in Manhattan, the civil probe into similar issues by the New York State Attorney General, the criminal probe in Atlanta into Trump's election interference and countless civil lawsuits over defamation and accusations of sexual misconduct now finally moving forward, now that he is out of office and no longer enjoys the protection of the Justice Department and a corrupt attorney general, to keep him from accountability, it sure doesn't look like he is winning. But he has slithered out of trouble before. He's made a career of it, in fact. So will he be able to do it again? Joining us now from the aforementioned long-lived Empty Wheel blog is the proprietor of the establishment, who we have not spoken to with uh, on this uh, on this show for a ridiculously long time, though that may only be because she has uh, appears to have escaped from the U.S. <laughs> to move to Ireland. But we have tracked her down. Our old friend Marcy Wheeler is back. She is, of course, the independent national security journalist and contributor to many other publications, including The Intercept, The Guardian, Politico, The New York Times, among others, as she has been uh, covering legal issues surrounding national security 
civil liberties and presidential politics for uh, Dang pushing two decades just about now, if my math is correct. Oh, Marcy Wheeler, welcome back to the broadcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks to have me. And uh, gosh, we've been doing this an awfully long time, you and I, right? Uh, haven't we, though? I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find some reason to stop anytime soon, if only because we're too damn old. Listen, Marcy, you can run, but you can't hide. What the heck are you doing in Ireland? Did you leave Michigan because of all of that mask wearing and other tyranny by the state's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer? I left for personal reasons, but I have to say my spouse and I, we had pretty much 95% decided we were going to leave. Yeah. And then that was the first of the insurgencies, the heavily armed insurgencies in Lansing mm -hmm. um, that really are the predecessor to January 6th. And that wasn't why we left, but I kept <laughs> saying, you know, it really is a good time to get away from this kind of political violence because it's only going to get worse after Joe Biden wins. And there you have it. Wow. Well, you know, I'm curious. Let's just say I'm asking for a friend. What's it like covering U.S. politics from an entirely different country? Uh, is it do you find a different perspective on, on what is going on here from over there? Well, we are um, one of the differences is that they actually have COVID measures here. So we are in a very strict lockdown and have been for a chunk of the time that I've been here. So I'm basically living on the Internet because, you know, I go out, see some castles, uh, <laughs> maybe ride my bike because, you know, we're we're in the Gulf Stream, um, and then go back on and I'm basically sleep. I have an excuse to sleep late. That's the big mm. difference, I think. Oh, there you go, because of the time difference. So other than the castles, it's pretty much just like you were here anyway. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. I mean, I have yet to have a proper Guinness in a proper pub. What? I've had Guinnesses in two different restaurant bars, but that's the that's the extent of the lockdown here. And so, wow. There you have it. All right. Well, hopefully uh, you'll have one soon, and maybe we'll even join you. So we have been focusing uh, a lot on accountability on this show. We always do, uh, and as I know you have as well at Empty Wheel of late. Let's start with uh, Joe Biden's. Attorney General <clears throat> nominee Merrick Garland, I know there are a number of folks I've heard from that, uh, while happy to see Garland at least receive his sort of consolation prize to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court nomination that was stolen from him, some uh, have had concerns that he might not be tough enough to take on the former president and those in his administration uh, for an infinite list of wrongdoing, it seems, over the past four years. Do you share those concerns? Look, I mean, so he was nominated or, you know, informally he was announced the day before January 6th. And I did a piece then, and I was like, here's the reasons he's better than you think. And at that point I was talking about it matters who the other people were. We since learned that Vanita Gupta and Karen Clark got, got nominated as well, mm -hmm. and Lisa Monaco. It matters that that he won't be a judge anymore enforcing criminal justice issues. It matters that he's opening up a spot for a young judge to take his place on the D.C. Circuit. So at that mm. point, I was like, there are lots of reasons to look on this positively, even if he is considered a moderate. What he did, and you played this in, in your introduction, what he, the way he's approaching it, mm -hmm. and frankly, the way Joe Biden is, you know, like I'm not, uh, I would have loved a number of other candidates besides Joe Biden, mm -hmm. but I think both Biden and Garland looked on Charlottesville 
look now on January 6th, and they see a mission to preserve the Republic, basically. Mm-hmm. And so as you played, he came in and he said, look, you know, DOJ was founded to ensure justice during Reconstruction. That job has never finished. He was quite clear, you know, there's still disparities for people of color, and that's why I'm here. And that was breathtaking, frankly, mm-hmm. because that's not, you know, when he was nominated, again, the day before January 6th, he was nominated largely because he was going to be easily confirmed, because he was going to reassure Republicans, he was going to give them confidence, even though they shouldn't ever have not had it, mm-hmm. that we were going to, that there was going to be a depoliticization of DOJ. And then what he did in his hearing the other day was come in and say, but I am going to deliver on the mission of DOJ as it was founded 151 years ago, and I'm going to do so because the project of Reconstruction is incomplete. And that was, Hmm. again, breathtaking because... That's far more than we bargained for, and that's precisely what we need at this moment. And he seems to be, uh, and 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 I concur. It really was uh, great to hear. Uh, he he seems to be focusing, of course, on uh, accountability uh, for the January sixth insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, and suggested. As I heard it, that he was open to uh, looking at causes, groups, people other than those who actually went into the Capitol uh, to hold them accountable as well. How far that goes, if it goes all the way up to uh, a president of the United States, I don't know. But uh, do you think his, his priorities are in order there? Is that the place that you would seek accountability first if you were named A.G. Marcy Wheeler at this point? Yeah, look, so I think when he was nominated, and when Biden was asked about this, people really misunderstood Biden's answer. Biden said, it's not my job to determine what DOJ is going to do. I'm not going to say I'm going to prosecute Trump. Mm -hmm. And what Garland said yesterday over and over again, even beyond questions of January 6th, was, I've been guaranteed Biden is not going to get involved. And that's what Biden was saying he would do. And that's what Garland, that is the guarantee that Garland got coming in. And so he's not saying I'm going to go after Trump, nor should he, because if he actually does go after Trump, there should be the appearance that he did because of the evidence. Mm-hmm. And, there, you know, there is an abundance of evidence. But he was asked a very specific question about January 6th on this front. And he said, look, I'm a prosecutor and we follow the evidence and we build cases and we try and go up the line. I think the question was specifically in terms of a kingpin or some, you know, drug master or something like Mm -hmm. that. And so the implication was he is not going to shy away from that. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. I'm covering these cases really closely, and I frankly don't see... uh, Garland is also asked, and this was something very minor but very important for those of us who care about civil liberties. He was asked... Do you need a domestic terror statute? And he said, look, you know, I prosecuted Timothy McVeigh without one. I don't, uh, let me, let me check first. I'm not asking for one right now. And that is hopefully where he'll end up. I mean, I, there, there shouldn't be a need for a domestic terror statute. However, this case presents a lot of oddities, partly because pretty much everyone who went in the Capitol committed a crime, and therefore it's very easy to arrest a bunch of people. The question is what you do with that. The question is also how you use the typical tools of prosecution to work your way up, to get cooperators. 
And one of the things DOJ is already discovering is that because there's no language to describe what this thing was, I mean, it was an insurrection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It was, it was sedition. It was an attack on the Constitution. And they are using language. They're not using sedition yet because that's a legal term, but they are using insurrection. They are using attack on Constitution. But the thing is that, that, um, well, I'm confident that they can prosecute people for this crime. Like, it's unclear whether they can detain these people. Like, there's, there was the hearing of this woman, Jessica Watkins, who's mm-hmm. sort of a um, cell leader of the Oath Keepers. Right. She was recruiting people. She was saying, you know, if Joe Biden comes in, I have to go underground. I, you know, it's coup. We have to give our blood to prevent him. I mean, her language very apocalyptic, even before the election, and her detention is is quite up in the air right now. Um, and it's up in the air because because you can't point to her as you can to some Muslim kid who pressed a button mm. that the FBI handed to them. You can't point to her and say this was terrorism because of a lot of legal things that we want to preserve. And so I think it's an interesting moment. Garland came in yesterday and said, I don't see the need for it at this point, and I hope that remains true. But the way to get around that legal problem is to go bigger. The way to get around that legal problem is to go to sedition, is to go to Trump trying to overturn the Constitution in order to stay in office. And so I almost think they're going to be forced in that direction, at Uh least to Roger Stone, at least to Rudy Giuliani. But, you know, the other thing that's going on is, is all of these defendants one after another, after another, saying, you know, I was just swept up by the inflammatory language of the then president. That may be true. That doesn't get him off on the crime. But if one or if one or another, you know, one after another of these people are saying Trump made me do it, then yeah. at some point you've got to respond to that. Well, and and that's it was I think you may have already answered it. Was sort of my next question as someone who uh, watches this stuff closer uh, than really anybody else often uh, sees where this is going before even some of the prosecutors do. It sounds like you do see that, yes, there is at least the potential for criminal liability in reality for Donald Trump coming out of any such probe of January 6th. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah, here's the thing is a lot of media articles on this are questioning whether or not he can be charged for incitement which was, of course, the single charge in um, impeachment. Right. And, and I'm seeing these articles where they quote a bunch of experts who are like, uh, no, it'd be conspiracy. It wouldn't be incitement. And yet people have it in their mind that this is, this is incitement. Yes, it was incitement. But, but what, what um, the Proud Boys, I think there's um, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people charged with conspiracy and then a set of six Oath Keepers of both these right-wing terrorist groups, right? Mm -hmm. In each case, they are charged with conspiring to prevent or delay the counting of the electoral votes. So the conspiracy here is not to kill, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's not to steal a billion dollars. It is to prevent an official official event, Mm -hmm. which is mandated by the Constitution, the counting of the electoral votes. And there's abundant evidence for that, right, that all these people are doing it. And each of these conspiracies talk about them putting on uniforms and arranging travel. And, it, you know, it's, it's very quotidian, you know, that, that, that how they get their bodies to D.C. to stop the vote, 
to stop the counting of the vote. But it's hard to tell that story. And in fact, the overt acts that show up in these conspiracy cases are get as many bodies to D.C. as you can, right? right. Use social media to inflame people to get as many bodies as, to D.C. Mm-hmm. as you can. Well, you know, I mean, that seems you don't tell that story without talking about Trump. And so, yes, there will need to be the work of, you know, looking to see whether Roger Stone was the intermediary. Rudy Giuliani, there's already evidence in the public record that Rudy Giuliani was an intermediary between the Proud Boys and Donald Trump. You know, so there will, it's going to take time. Yeah. But the object of the conspiracies as charged is exactly the object of Trump's efforts to to undermine the vote. Now, and so... It's of so course. it's not, you know, and, and this is without them going to seditious conspiracy. I mean, the prosecutors involved have left open the possibility they'll get there. It might be that they charge seditious conspiracy and this mm-hmm. um, conspiracy to, to prevent the counting of the vote. But ultimately, there is zero question. Like, I, and I, during impeachment, I kept going to this, like Trump made a request to Mike Pence for him to just throw out random states, right? Mm-hmm. Mike Pence said that was unconstitutional. And in some of the evidence that Trump himself submitted to the impeachment case, like his defense said, Mike Pence told me it was unconstitutional. So there's no contest that Trump made an unconstitutional request of Mike Pence directly tied to preventing the counting of the votes. And so I think it is conceivable you'll get to that conspiracy. And, and, well, and you know, I, I think it might be necessary. I, well, I think it's definitely necessary, but I'm somewhat, you know, and, and we'll see if, in fact, this changes now that he's out of office. But, you know, Michael Cohen and the uh, uh, DOJ, even under uh, Donald Trump, while Donald Trump was still in office, said specifically that Donald Trump directed the conspiracy that Michael Cohn ended up going to jail for. I don't know how you send somebody to jail for taking part in the conspiracy without actually bringing charges against the person who directed the conspiracy. And, you know, of course, Marcy Wheeler, what America wants to see, or at least a few million of us anyway, is Trump going to jail. And short of that, you know, to see him and his family, I guess, financially ruined, preferably both. But how much closer are we after the Supreme Court's clearance uh, for Trump's accounting firm uh, on Monday to uh, turn over his financial documents to the Manhattan District Attorney into that criminal probe uh, into fraud uh, and the uh, and the Stormy Daniels hush money payoffs at this point that came out of uh, came out of uh, of the charges against Michael Cohen and out of his testimony. Is that a real landmark? What happened at the Supreme Court on Monday? Do you think that is where this is heading now? Uh, Vance is heading. Well, look, I mean, you said that you want to see Trump in jail on the January 6th stuff. We need to have Trump implicated in this, not because he should go to jail, though I think he should, but because if we do not stop undermining democracy, it won't stick around for very long. It it won't be Trump. Mm -hmm. It'll be Josh Hawley or somebody like that. But if we don't, if we don't impose some costs for what Trump pulled on January 6th, we're in really deep trouble. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't even matter that it's Trump. It matters that there is some kind of accountability. One of the things I really like, uh, I'm not a huge, I'm not, I'm not a Cy Vance fan at all. But what Vance is doing is, A, he's not running again. 
Um, there was always a lot of question about the trade-offs he made to get reelected. He's not running, so mm-hmm. he doesn't have to raise money. Mm-hmm. He, you know, there's allegations that he he made trade-offs before and didn't prosecute Trump's kids. Not running. He's bringing in experts. He's bringing in experts to do the forensic work. He's bringing in experts to do the actual prosecution. And after yesterday's or whatever day, I've lost track of time, the decision by the Supreme Court, he just said the work continues. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't flashy. Right. It wasn't showboating. And, you know, while I'm a fan of what Letitia James is doing, while I'm a fan of what's going on in Georgia, also potentially holding Trump accountable for, for bullying Republicans, to the extent that people can do what Vance did or be what Merrick Garland is, which is really low-key, Mm-hmm. and say, this isn't about Donald Trump. Because cause the more it's about Donald Trump, the more he'll do exactly what you said in your introduction, which is, say, it's fascism, he's the biggest victim ever. Mm-hmm. If, you know, if Cy Vance very quietly works and puts together a case that is compelling and involves really obvious documentation. I mean, I remember when um, Paul Manafort went to trial. Same thing. It's like, you, it's, it's not a question of what the jury thinks when the when it's all about paper evidence. It's about walking them through the accounting mm-hmm. so that they understand it. And and that's where I think we would be well served to head. And that's where I, I think. I mean, I, I'm I'm encouraged by the way Vance is conducting himself. Yeah, right now. you're you're of course being wildly careful and cautious on all of this, which is a, a smart idea. But I do. I think I hear some optimism on all of these fronts uh, as far as uh, seeing some accountability here. And not, by the way, that a a felony conviction uh, or even being in jail, uh, actually in prison, actually prevents a candidate from running for president of the United States, remarkably enough, unless he's, I think, uh, specifically if he's charged under the Federal Insurrection Act, I believe, uh, then he couldn't run for uh, future office. But you know, with all of this apparent legal trouble ahead for Donald Trump, does it even matter, Marcy, that the Democrats were not able to get a conviction during a second impeachment for an incitement that would have prevented him from running for any future office? In other words, will his what looked like a mountain, a tsunami of, of legal troubles now heading his way, uh, will that prevent him being really being able to run for office or will it uh, in a very sort of Trumpy way make him? more determined to, you know, get that sweet, sweet presidential immunity again and uh, and, of course, declare what a what a victim he is to help propel him back to office. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the acquittal on impeachment is more important for the extent that it may disrupt the Republican Party. Right. So. Had that not happened, had January 6th not happened, then the Republican Party would have made everything impossible for Joe Biden. And they're going to try that anyway. Mm-hmm. But what you have now are these splits within the Republican Party. You've got, you know, whatever, four Republicans who are like, that was beyond the pale, which it was. You have all, you know, you have these institutional Republican parties censoring, censoring people who are really hardcore Republicans. Right. Um, canceling and, them. We'd like to say they're canceling them, Marcy. Go right. Ahead. Yeah. But, but to the extent that that happens and then it is shown that Trump is a cheat, is a fraud, is a loser. I mean, the, the really important thing mm-hmm. is that his voters come to view him as a loser and a sellout to them. 
And if that happens, then all of the things the Republican Party is doing now to avoid pissing off Donald Trump, I think will really hurt them. Will really come back and, and, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it'll, there, there may be, and I can't guarantee that this will happen. I keep believing that there may be a snowballing where the four years, now five years of doing anything that Donald Trump demanded, will come back to haunt the Republican Party. And I think mm-hmm. there was just enough dissension on impeachment from Republicans. And an even bigger, I think, vote, not that I'm a fan of Liz Cheney, but the vote to keep Liz Cheney there as the number three in the House, she won by a good number, mm-hmm. right? She won solidly. And what that tells you is Republicans, even elected officials are really sick of Donald Trump. They're just trying to find a way out of this hostage uh, yeah, and situation they, they're in. Yeah, I know. You know what? And they had one. They could have convicted. I had argued during the uh, impeachment that it would, probably would have been the best thing for the Republican Party to bar this guy from future office, taking away really what is his last superpower, his fear that he will run again. But they didn't take my advice for some reason. Uh, Marcy, I've got uh, just uh, about a minute here left. Uh, What about Bill Barr and others at the Department of Justice who appear to have gone, you know, way around DOJ guidelines in in all sorts of ways to help Trump and his friends? I've heard talk that there may, may be a review of some of those processes, what actually happened inside the DOJ during the Trump years. But is there a chance that folks like Bill Barr could actually face some sort of actual accountability for what he did as Trump's uh, fixer and consigliere while supposedly serving as the U.S. attorney general? Or is that something that, oh, they're allowed to get away with? I I really don't know. I mean, there are things, uh, I mean, I've heard even since inauguration, I've the, the degree to which uh, Barr was pressuring people to do completely unconscionable stuff is even greater than is public. Mm-hmm. That story is not fully coming out because no one wants to be on the line for that. No one wants to be talking about those details that went on in prosecutions. You know, we'll see what happens mm-hmm. at DOJIG. We'll see what happens on some lawsuits. We'll see what happens when Merrick Garland gets in. But I, I, the, the, the the evidence is there. The question is in what form it comes out. And and I'm, I'm not terrifically optimistic, but I will certainly keep working to see <laughs> if I can make that happen. Well, you know what? Just the fact that you're optimistic at all about the two earlier points I asked you about uh, is shocking for someone like you. Marcy Wheeler, of course, a longtime Liz Cheney fan and independent <laughs> national... <laughs> <laughs> independent national security journalist at uh, emptywheel.net you uh, should visit there every day and of course you can find her on the twitters at simply empty wheel marcy wheeler great speaking with you again even from ireland uh, i hope we get to do it again uh, sooner now that there will be a lot of accountability coming because you said so thank you all right let's hope for it <laughs> <laughs> Hoping indeed. All right, got to go. Green News Report is next with Desi Doyen. I'm Yay. Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast.
The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Once again, I'm sorry to say, no time for chit-chats <laughs> nope. before our latest Green News report. The economic toll from the storms could reach as high as $50 billion. Texas power crisis over for now. Water crisis continues. Texas Republicans that falsely scapegoated wind energy are getting big bucks from the fossil fuel industry. U.S. rejoins the Paris Climate Agreement. Plus... The case for rebuilding U.S. infrastructure for climate resilience. All of those cases and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. With millions of Texans without water and heat, we see the vulnerability of windmills, especially when they're frozen. And we see the propaganda value of Fox News. Never mind that 80% of Texas power that relies on fossil fuels. That was also frozen. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, things looking up in Texas, at least? Uh, yes, Texas has begun to thaw, and electricity has slowly returned for most customers in the state a week after it was walloped by a massive, deadly, record winter storm that knocked out power, heat, and water amid sub-freezing temperatures to nearly 4 million people. Now it's also a water crisis. Hundreds of municipal water systems in the state literally froze. Now millions of residents are under boil water notices. Millions more in Louisiana and Mississippi face the same crisis. President Joe Biden has signed a new major disaster declaration freeing up federal emergency disaster and recovery funding. The statewide power failures were primarily triggered by the state's deregulated and privatized electric grid that did not require private power companies to winterize their systems. So they didn't, preferring to pocket the profits instead. And the state's customers are paying the price, literally. Some retail utility customers have already received bills in the thousands of dollars because the Texas deregulated system allows that. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has pledged investigations into the catastrophic system failures and says state leaders are moving to alleviate massive energy bills triggered by the storm. He better not look too close in that investigation. The Texas grid is primarily based on natural gas and coal plants, which failed. But Earther reports that Republicans who tried to falsely blame renewable energy energy for the power outages are, surprise, recipients of, quote, a dizzying amount of money contributed by the fossil fuel industry. What? Republican senators Ted Cruz and John Cornyn and Republican Representative Dan Crenshaw were the top three loudest anti-wind voices from Texas. They alone snagged more than $1.1 million from the oil and gas industry in the 2020 election cycle. You get what you pay for. The 
catastrophic Texas power outage is also just the latest sign of the risks that increasingly extreme weather, intensified by man-made climate change, now poses to the nation. Cascading crises waiting to happen due to our failure to invest in, maintain, and upgrade America's aging infrastructure for decades. The record winter storm triggered power outages from Oklahoma to Ohio, halted one-third of U.S. oil production, and disrupted vaccination distribution in 20 states. Economic losses could top $50 billion from a single storm. You get what you pay for. The Texas power disaster underscores again the warnings of environmental groups about climate change. U.S. infrastructure is not prepared for the present, much less the future. Yeah, but that is a lot of money to get from the fossil fuel industry, don't you think? Biden's newly minted Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg connected the dots between the catastrophic failures in Texas and ongoing record billion-dollar disasters in the U.S. in recent years. He made the case on CNN for Congress to pass Biden's Build Back Better infrastructure proposal to harden the nation's critical systems for resilience against accelerating climate impacts. The question is, you know, how uh, far do we want to let America fall behind before we finally do something? I don't know. Let's ask the oil companies. But I think we've come to a moment where it's very clear, in some cases, crushingly and bluntly made clear by uh, things like what Texans are suffering through this week, Mm. that America cannot wait any longer, that we can't afford not to act. Finally, some good news. The U.S. has officially rejoined the United Nations Paris Climate Agreement as President Biden erases former President Trump's withdrawal from the landmark international compact for all countries to cut their contribution to greenhouse gas emissions that cause man-made climate change. In remarks to the Munich Security Conference late last week, Biden urged government leaders to meet the climate crisis with the urgency that it requires. We can no longer delay or do the bare minimum to address climate change. This is a global existential crisis. And we'll all suffer, we'll all suffer the consequences if we fail. We have to rapidly accelerate our commitments to aggressively curb our emissions and to hold one another accountable for meeting our goals and increasing our ambitions. Wow, it's as if we never left. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. So take a deep breath, pick yourself up, start all over again. Yep, here we go. (laughs) Thank you very much, Desi Doyan. Thanks to my guest today, Empty Wheels, Marcy Wheeler, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, consider uh, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves and replace our catalytic converter. <laughs> if uh, you'd like to drop me email, I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. And start all over again. That's enough now.